Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. A little later in the program, we're going to hear from the illustrator of the Black Panther Party's primary publication, and we'll talk to Detroit News columnist Neil Rubin about the annual Bookstock event. But we're going to start today's show here. Our first guest likes to say that data is the new oil. That sentiment was on display last week as Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg tried to explain to Congress just what his company does with its users' personal data. With so much data available about us every time we use our smartphones, every time we sign up for customer loyalty perks, it's worth asking what the future looks like for the information and tech industries. WDET Sandra Swoboda spoke with Amy Webb, who is a quantitative futurist, which means she looks at data in the present to make predictions about the future. She is the founder of the Future Today Institute. She teaches at New York University, and she's the author of the book, The Signals Are Talking, which shares some of her research and methods about how to make sense of data. Here's Amy Webb's conversation with Sandra Swoboda. Everyone wants to know what the future is. How can we figure that out in a way that's relevant in our everyday lives? Understanding the future is, first and foremost, understanding that there is no way to predict what's coming. So with that in mind, the best that we can possibly do is to use you know, data to listen for weak signals in the present and to look for patterns and from those patterns to spot emerging trends and then to use those trends to try to understand how the world may unfold and really what that is about is thinking through risk and opportunity scenarios. Uh, and that's really, you know, the, it's intensive work, but it's work that anybody can and quite frankly uh, should be doing if you're somebody who's concerned about the future. Your writing and your research comes a lot from the tech industry, but for people who are involved in other sectors, news media, for just, just for one example, how does the, what's going on in the tech world apply to other industries now? So in the year 2018... Technology is interwoven into every other aspect of everyday life. So regardless of whether you are the CEO of a mid-sized firm, you know, or working in private equity or, you know, working inside of an auto manufacturing, you know, company, uh, technology still intersects with your everyday life. So you really, if, if you're trying to understand what's on the horizon, technology has to be a part of that conversation because it fuels the way that we live uh, in the modern age. And seeing what's going on in the world now with so many issues with technology, and we'll get into some of those specifics, uh, how, how could we better have prepared for all of these issues that we're facing now? I guess the bad news is that none of this should have come as a surprise to us. So, and again, this just goes back to allowing yourself to pay attention in a more meaningful way to what's happening in the present. What are all of the weak signals surrounding us, right? And how can we make sense of that information? So, you know, Twitter's now been around for more than a decade, and so has Facebook. But as early as 2010, you know, there were signs that um, on both platforms, people and systems and organizations were using those systems and you know, ways that would exploit our data. Um, it should have been no surprise to the United States government that rogue actors would try to use bots on Twitter to spread misinformation. In fact, we saw that happening in 2011. We saw it happening in 2012. I was in Washington, D.C., advising senior leadership 
that that this was the case in 2014 and in 2015, but it wasn't until 2016 when we finally started talking about it. You know, and and now that we are, you know, talking about Cambridge Analytica and Facebook and the uh, what might have happened or not have happened to our data. Again, it feels like something that 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 you know just happened, right? However, again, the 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 beginnings of this go back many years, and you know, the the challenge is acknowledging that something seems a little off when you first notice it, and sometimes that can have some negative business implications. The reality is that for many of our technology platforms. Uh, their business model is predicated on surveillance. And the challenge is we must acknowledge that and either decide we're okay with it, even though it may have negative implications for our democracy and our um, feeling of personal security, or we have to do something to change that. Or I guess there's a third option, which is we don't use the services. But, um, you know, everybody feels as though we're sort of caught um, constantly with this barrage of brand new news that seems like things are constantly happening, when in reality, nothing changes overnight. They very rarely do things change overnight. So all of the threads of the current news stories that we feel like we're being bombarded with on a daily basis, which range from uh, technology companies using our data in ways that we're uncomfortable with to the reality that Russia may be slowly but surely infiltrating various parts of our democracy to whatever it's happening this five minutes in Syria, you know, to um, the slow decline of a, it feels like Americans, America's news organizations are, you know, in financial disarray. All of these things have been happening over a, a number of years. Um, the, the key is to break that cycle. Uh, of surprise and then making decisions under duress. And the only way to do that is to dedicate yourself to tracking those signals and those trends that are data-driven um, and then making decisions as you go. It's interesting you use the word surveillance when it came to data that are collected about us on Facebook. But I also kind of feel like this has been going on for years. We all like our frequent flyer programs. We like our credit card discounts when you sign up and you get points. You know, Everything that we're part of in our economy, I feel like, has the potential for that data harvesting slash data sharing slash uh, surveillance that you used. Are we just too far down this road to really make a difference now? So that's a pretty big question. Here's what I would say. Um, if you have not yet heard this, you will soon. Uh, and that is a new aphorism that data is the new oil. And the reason that people are likening data to oil as a natural resource um, is because, like oil, our data has to be located, mined, refined, productized, and then turned into a commodity that others um, buy. Our data is very much the same. So we are creating untold untold amounts of data just by virtue of being alive. And some of that's obvious. So the tweets that you tweet and the Facebook posts that you post, but there's a lot of ambient data that you create as well. So just if you've got a cell phone and you're carrying it around with you, you're shedding ambient data uh, everywhere that you go that's accessible by third parties. Um, so, you know, the trick is given how much data we are shedding uh, those organizations capable of mining it using artificial intelligence and, you know, other systems to make sense of it, 
and then to turn that into products for others to use, you know, those companies are making a lot of money. Now, here's the thing. You know, in some cases, it's it's too late. Uh, in other cases, it's not. So Europe has decided it's, you know, it's they've had enough. And so on May 25th, there's something called the GDPR, which is going into effect. It's a sweeping privacy regulation that will affect all of the EU that has to do with how individuals' data um, are used. That's going to be hard to implement. It's also, you know, again, if you think through the likely scenarios, um, not only is this difficult to implement, but it definitely uh, shows us that there's a high probability that the Internet will function differently in Europe than it does elsewhere in the world, which is to say that if you're a news organization and you publish one story in the United States, it's possible that people in France may not be able to see it or they may see it, have to see a different version of it, right? Um, a lot of the personalization capabilities are going to be different in Europe than they are in the United States, which means different implementations. I mean, you know, we, we have to stop and think through uh, where we're headed. And while the EU has these sort of has this blunt force sweeping uh, regulatory change coming in a month and a half. In the United States, it's, you know, it's a free-for-all. We have no real regulation. We have no real oversight. And while there has recently been a circus in Washington, D.C., where our lawmakers have, you know, uh, been on C-SPAN asking Mark Zuckerberg, you know, what, what probably feels to them like really challenging questions, uh, the reality is that we don't have any real oversight here in the United States. You're listening to Detroit Today on WDET. I'm Sandra Swoboda, and with me in studio is Amy Webb. She is a futurist. That's the shortest title I can come up with her for her. She's a professor. She's an author. And she is trying to help the world understand how to predict the future by looking at trends and signals that are on our on our uh, screens today, in our world today, and what they tell us about what the world might be like a few years from now. So let's continue in this conversation a little bit about the, the technology and how we interact with it and how it influences our world. W what is motivating all of us to know the dangers of technology? We know, When we go on Facebook, we know that our data, is our personal information is being shared, but yet billions of people still use it. What, how, how do we reconcile that in, in what's motivating us and what does it tell us as about American society now? You know, what's so interesting to me is that this is not a new use case. So throughout our history, we've always had new technologies and our lives have never moved as fast as those technologies are evolving. And as a result of that, oftentimes that technology is not good for us in some way, but we kept keep using it. So Larry Page, one of the founders of Google, um, talks about a toothbrush test. And inside of Google, a product will, will get the green light if it passes what he calls the toothbrush test. And that is, is it something you might use once or twice a day, and it makes life a little bit better? So a lot of our current technologies pass the toothbrush test, even if, in the process, they may be giving us cavities. Uh, right? So Uber. So... Um, you know, Uber for a long time had surge pricing. And for those of you not familiar with Uber's surge pricing, this is when, for any number of different reasons, uh, the the cost of a ride would increase three, four, five times, sometimes even more than that. 
And people would complain about it. They would take screenshots of their phones and they would post them on Facebook and Twitter and complain about how horrible it was that Uber was doing this to them. And yet the screenshot showed that the ride had been completed. Which they still used it. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And so part of what's happening here is a cognitive shift uh, when our lives are made very slightly easier or better in some way. We will use whatever that technology is, even if ultimately it does us some kind of harm, right? So in the case of Uber, we're spending a lot more money than we might have spent using a different mode of transportation because the exp- experience is so easy and seamless, right? And it and it works. Um, you know, there's this national movement to delete, you know, hashtag delete Facebook, and there are all these celebrities uh, tweeting, of course, <laughs> pictures yeah, of them. The right. irony. I know, right? Uh, tweeting themselves, uh, quitting Facebook. Um, but if, but it, we have to look at the data. And what do the data show? The data show that as of right now, not a whole lot of people have deleted Facebook. And by the way, for these five minutes, while everybody's suddenly got their attention focused on Facebook, we've all somehow forgotten that less than six months ago, we were having the same conversation about Twitter in the revelation that there were Russian bots on the on the network. And when are we going to have it about Google? Well, that's the other thing, right? So um, if think of all the different repositories for your data, uh, you know, so Facebook is not is not the only company. And by the way, you think that Cambridge Analytica is the only recipient? I mean, you know, come on, like, let's let's think about this in like more realistic terms. But here's what I would say. Uh, Facebook may have betrayed our trust, but Facebook didn't do anything illegal as far as we can currently tell, right? And if you're a, a human using technology and you're using that technology or that platform for free, you know, you you have to understand that um, you are therefore the product that's being sold, right? In the few minutes we have left, I'm going to ask you here to, to think a little bit about the future. What what happens now? Do we get policy and oversight? Does it come from federal government? Are there things local governments are doing that uh, relate to this issue of privacy and data? So I'm a realist, so I'm just going <laughs> to give it to you straight. All right. All right. Um, nothing happens. Nothing substantive, you know, of any substantive change happens. Um, and that is because for, for the ways in which these companies make us feel uncomfortable, our behaviors are not changing as a result. And these are the companies that help make the American economy strong. So I don't see any serious change coming down the pipeline. If anything, these are the companies that are writing the legislation that will go into effect. Facebook has already done that for places like the state of Maryland. So normally I ask uh, policymakers or advocates what normal citizens can do to affect change. And I usually get write your legislator as as an example and advocate on issues. But in this case, is it just our behavior is going to outweigh anything we can do in terms of sort of this traditional citizen political engagement? The very best thing that you can do, honestly, is to just develop a better set of digital street smarts. And Such are, as? Well, um, give us the a, toolkit. Sure. Here's, here's an easy one. You go into your grocery store, you get the little coupon card thing, right? You just have to fill out your name and address and all your personal information. Like you don't need to tell the grocery store where you live and what your email address is and all of that other information in order to get that discount card. You're getting a discount in exchange for your personal data. 
that's something that most people don't think of, right? And so, you know, if you, here's, here's an easy thing that anybody can do this week. So it's Monday. Uh, here's something that you can do for the next five days. Um, put yourself on a, on a sort of audit for the, for every day, write down the amount of times that, and the circumstances in which you are giving people data, um, in ways that are obvious to you. And hopefully as you do this throughout the week, the non-obvious ways in which you're shedding data will start to become apparent at the end of the week. So by Friday, take a look at everything that you've written down and now consider what are you comfortable with? What's an even fair exchange? And what are the you know, what are the behaviors that you have to change going forward? I may just do that this week and see what it does. Will you audit me? You don't want me to have your data. <laughs> no, I mean, what are the times I'm giving it out? And as I think about it, are there are there times it's good to share your data? Well, again, you know, I think we just all have to have to be a little smarter. Um, and Facebook, again, I would say that Facebook has betrayed our trust, and that's really irritating. And Facebook definitely had some impact on our election, which is, depending on where you fall in the political spectrum, right? potentially <laughs> reprehensible, right? Um, on the other hand, Facebook helped enable uh, the Arab Spring, right? So, so there are trade-offs, as there always are. So the question that you have to ask yourself is this. How comfortable are you uh, giving away your personal information in exchange for services? And what are the implications of that going forward? So another quick and easy thing that anybody can do um, is to, to sort of audit the visual information that they've shared. So in my case, I have a daughter. We have never posted or shared anything about her online ever because when she was born a decade ago, this is something my husband and I were thinking a lot about. So go through all of the pictures you've ever shared of your kids, you know, and stop given the knowledge that you have now and what you're seeing unfold. How comfortable are you knowing that not just the photos exist, but that is data, that is visual data that can also be mined? and refined and productized. Uh, and then anything that you're not comfortable with, and it could be all of those photos, you know, take them down. Amy Webb, thanks so much for joining us on Detroit Today at WDET. Thanks so much. That was WDET Sandra Swoboda speaking with futurist Amy Webb. Coming up, we'll talk to Emery Douglas, who is an illustrator and influential activist in the Black Panther movement. 